This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Tan Tuan Eng, author of The House of Doors. I mean, my mind is constantly on all the time when I'm walking or outside. It's constantly recording. If I see a bird flying down, swooping down over something, I'll think, oh, that's pretty, but how, how would I make it prettier and memorable and fresh? Well, it's, it's, it's very tiring. We'll be back with Tan Tuan Eng after these essential words. So this past June marked the 10th anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading, researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is, how did we get to 9,000 hours? Is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor. And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before, or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. 
Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash first draft writers. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash first draft writers. Please stay tuned at the end of the interview. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My guest today is Tan Tuan Eng, whose debut novel, The Gift of Rain, was longlisted for the Booker Prize in 2007 and has been widely translated. His second novel, The Garden of Evening Mists, won the Man Asian Literary Prize in 2012 and the 2013 Walter Scott Prize for Historical Fiction and was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Tan divides his time between Kuala Lumpur and Cape Town. His new book is called The House of Doors and was longlisted for the 2023 Booker Prize. The House of Doors takes place in Penang, Malaysia, and revolves around historical events that took place in the early 20th century. At the center of the novel are three interwoven stories that involve the Chinese revolutionary Sun Yat-sen's visit to Penang, British novelist W. Somerset Mong's visit to an old friend and his wife, and the trial of a British woman accused of murdering her lover. Specifically, Willie Somerset Mong and his secretary, Gerald, who is also his lover, arrive in Penang for an extended visit with Leslie Hamlin and her husband, Robert. Willie is searching for a subject for his next book. Leslie is watching the potential collapse of her marriage while also befriending Chinese revolutionary Sun Yat-sen. At the same time, Leslie's friend Ethel is on trial for the murder of her lover. The novel was inspired by the short story called The Letter that Somerset Maugham published in 1926, which was based on a notorious murder trial in Kuala Lumpur. We began the discussion with me giving another, a little bit different description of the book for Tan Tuan Eng. The letter is about a trial of a woman, uh, a European woman, who kills another European man who she claimed raped her. And her husband is behind her in supporting her in this trial. And that is what the letter was about. And you're reverse engineering and saying, okay, this was based on a real trial. Who was this woman? Her name in real life was Ethel, but in the story, her name was Leslie. And then you, your main character was really this woman named Leslie who was married to someone named Robert. And Leslie was the story, the way in for Somerset Mon, because they, he was friends with her husband, Robert, from back in the war. And he came to Penang and was staying at their house. And these were kind of stories that they were telling each other. I mean, the basis of this book is really storytelling, is these two characters telling each other about their lives and about the incidences that are happening. And then at the same time, as you mentioned, Sun Yat-sen is in Penang and he is like this rising leader um, for the new Republic of China, but can't be in China. So he is, you know, funding for his cause in other countries around the world. So your story is kind of melding these two and creating the background for what the letter was, but also all the drama is taking place in really three different times. You start in in the 40s where Leslie's moved to South Africa, and then most of it is in the 1910s and 20s where either the incidences are happening for this crime 
and where Willie, as you call him, Somerset Mon, Willie, is visiting Leslie and Robert. And then um, she's telling him 10 years later. Well, as, as you mentioned, uh, the House of Doors is at, uh, at its heart. The House of Doors really is about the process of creation, of of storytelling, how, how stories are handed from one person to another and in the process transform uh improved upon or modified and uh, uh um, concealed as well so the, the the whole heart of the house of doors is basically that you know this and the reason leslie and uh willie mom tell each other stories is is it's a form of dance between them because they they are quite wary of each other at the beginning they're not sure what to make of each other. They don't trust each other. So <laughs> handing out these little snippets to start with is a sort of testing each other to see how far they can go with each other. And and uh, slowly they warm towards each other and begin to trust each other more. They start telling each other more stories about themselves. Uh, that, that's basically the, um, the, the, the heart of the House of Doors. Mm. Because you have these three time periods, but primarily the, the third time period is only in the beginning and the end, the whole middle is two time periods. So sometimes between paragraphs, you'll go from one time to another, from the actual storytelling to the actual time. And there's almost like this invisible flow between them. And I'm curious about how you manage that as a writer. Well, to start with the the, the, the invisible flow is, is again comes. Uh, you can almost see the title of the book is House of Doors. So these these transitions are doorways as well for for the the uh, the story to to uh, progress. Uh, to begin with, I, most of the time when I'm in say 1921 and Willie and uh, Leslie are talking about something which had happened in the past, I use a certain word or a phrase there which I then repeat subsequently when the story goes back into the past so that the reader has a, a vague feeling of recognition or, or remembrance and they feel like hang on I've, I've i've this this phrase or this word sounds familiar uh where have i read that before so it, it sort of brings the reader along in a in a in a, in a subconscious way without without actually uh, um, hitting them over the head with 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 um, with the announcement that okay we are going onto a different time frame now. So I use different words that I repeat, sort of like the echo of a bell, to make the reader comfortable and yet at the same time vaguely um, wondering or puzzled as as to where have I heard this? This is so familiar. Uh, is it? because it's my own memory or because it's something I read. So it's sort of to, to in a way, bring the reader into the experience of, of memory and remembering and forgetting as well. Um, it, it's, it's quite difficult to do, I have to say. I have to, I, have to, I have to be so aware of the words I was using and the language I was using and to see where, which is the best place to plant these words and to, to, to find out what the effect of that would be uh, whether it works or not so there was a lot of rewriting back and forth back and forth uh, a lot of rewriting was that finesse with making sure you repeated that phrase or sentence something that came much later in the editing or was that 
happening in the generative process too? Uh, it it happened in the process if I remembered <laughs> to include it. Uh, most of it took place in the rewriting when I realized that I had this this uh, the the scenes had the, the transition between the scenes and the time timelines had to be more uh, uh, seamless, more fluid. So I had to find a way to almost uh, uh, iron out the line there and to make the flow almost like you know like like one wave overlapping another wave you you can't see where one wave starts and the other wave ends it has to become almost like one so uh that a lot of it happened in the rewriting uh, uh, i have to say i think this novel took you seven years to write and you just mentioned the word fun so what's your ratio between fun and maybe not fun for for what in, in the in my writing life or in, in it's fun when the writing is progressing very smoothly, which it doesn't do all the time. It's always uh, uh, huge blocks of obstacles. It's, I enjoy the rewriting more than writing the first draft because the first draft, you're actually trying to create something from nothing, which is always difficult. Where, uh, but once I've got the first draft there, I've got this rough piece of stone and I can start chipping away at it uh, to my heart's content. You know, actually I could have, been rewriting for many more years, I would I would be perfectly happy because I really enjoy rewriting. Uh, but of course, my publishers were anxious and they say, okay, where well, are we going to see the final product? But rewriting is something I really enjoy, especially when you get to play with language. And you, again, when you start to have fun uh, playing with, with resonances of words in different scenes and resonances, uh, not just words, but uh, um, um, relationships and expressions and all that you start to play with it, and you're wondering to yourself, well, would the would the reader pick this up? Would would the reader see this? What I'm doing here, and um, it that's that's uh, almost like a composer, I suppose, uh, creating little little tunes here and there, and then echoing them later on, just to see whether the listener pick, picks up those things. So when I asked you that question, you you said, do you mean in my writing life? So what's your ratio of fun to work in the uh, the rest of your life? Well, the rest of my life, I I try to have fun. I think uh, I have fun when I'm reading, when I'm reading novels or books unrelated to work. I have fun when I go out for walks in the evenings uh, just to get away from the writing desk. Uh, it's... And I tell myself that I'm, I'm 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 blessed in doing something I enjoy, which is writing, and which is which is something I'm competent at. Be, uh, because when I used to be a lawyer in Kuala Lumpur, and I was a terrible lawyer, uh, and I knew I was terrible for for many reasons, and one of them was that I I wasn't interested in in the job, and I was lazy, so. That, that didn't suit me. And then to find something which uh, I enjoy and which I'm, I'm competent at, at some uh, level, is, it's, it's rewarding. So I, I never complain about um, the writing life, which I know a lot of writers do, but uh, I think we're so lucky to be able to, to um, sit and write and create something. It, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, love it. One of the, of the comments and these are lines that really came from Willie Somerset Mons chapters 
were that there were commentary on writing that this is a, this is a book that's about storytelling but it's also about writing he says at one point um because in the book he loses his fortune and he is thinking god i have to start all over again basically making money i need to write books that make more money and and he says when he's envisioning that he wouldn't have to do that, he would have been happy to retire. And he said, thank God I don't have to describe another pretty sunset ever again. And then later he's saying uh, a story without love just wouldn't work. So these are two comments about writing themselves. And I wanted to ask you about that. Well, the, the, the comment about him uh, not having to uh, write another pretty sunset again is his own is his own uh, comment, uh, which I, I found in one of his biographies, uh, which I quite understand as well, because um, a lot of my books, all of my books have been quite descriptive. And that's what the readers and critics have picked up on. And uh, when, whenever they comment on The Gift of Rain or The Garden of Evening Mist, they say, oh, the writing is poetic and lush. The problem with writing of this sort, it's extremely difficult to write something like that for every book. Uh, you, it's, it gets harder and harder with with, with, with with every book I write. And I think that's one of the reasons why the sharp-eyed reader will notice that with every book I'm writing, the, the, the prose gets less and less <laughs> descriptive. Uh, to, to, to come up with something which is beautiful and uh, poetic and original as well, and yet familiar. You know, to to make the reader say, think, this is oh, this this sentence is gorgeous, and yes, that's exactly how I picture it. It hits me straight away because it's recognizable, and yet it's fresh and original and poetic. It's extremely tiring and difficult. Uh, I mean, my mind is constantly constantly on all the time when I'm walking or outside. It's constantly recording. Oh, look at, look at, if I see a bird flying down, swooping down over something, I'll think, oh, that's pretty, but how, how would I make it prettier and memorable and fresh? Well, it's, it's, it's very tiring. So I, I sympathize with, with, um, Somerset Maugham when he said that, uh, as to the other point, a story without love is not worth writing about. That's that he never said that, but it was, it's my view, uh, because, Looking at all the literature that we've read and re- especially we remember, uh, it's all about love, isn't it? Stories about love. It's it's not about um, something something else. Uh, the great stories that uh, trans that that endure are all about love in 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 all its various forms. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. So I want to talk a little bit about descriptive writing. There was um, one moment in the book that I picked out that I thought was the most lush, the most important, the most... Um, maybe where you let go of your your strict adherence to yourself in in terms of that, and you really let go. And I imagine it it took a lot of work, but it's so beautiful. And what's interesting about it, I'm going to ask you to read it in a minute. What's interesting about it is that it was kind of this crescendo in the book. It was sort of like this 
moment of the experience of the sublime. And it was also a moment later in the book that you referred back to of transcendence for Somerset Maughan. So I thought it was really interesting that maybe one of the sections of the absolute most beautiful writing is also a a turning point for your character. And I thought that was so interesting. And I bet you know what I'm talking about. That's the the, the, the midnight swim, isn't it? The skinny dipping swim, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. And so I'm wondering if you would read that. The water was blood warm and I seemed to dissolve into it. It had been a long time since I last swam at night, and I couldn't help picturing shoals of creatures in the water, circling us in a silent tornado of razor-sharp teeth. Idiot. I pushed those fears away. We breasted far out to sea, the earth sloping away beneath us into valleys and chasms and broad, silent plains, untouched by the sun, since the beginning of the world. I couldn't make out the coast of the mainland in front of me, couldn't tell where the sea joined the sky. I turned to look back, but the house and the beach had been folded into a crease of the night. Only the distant, faintest hiss of surf, effervescing on sand, told me that the land was still there behind us, still existed. All at once we were swimming in cobalt fire, every kick and stroke igniting the tempest of plankton swirling around us. I laughed, the sound rupturing the quiet, windless night, and then Willie joined me as well. We dunked our heads under the blazing sea and came up again, spluttering fire from our lips. Rivulets of blue flame streamed down Willie's hair, his face. I touched my own cheek, felt it glowing. I scooped up handfuls of the sea, marveling at the fire snakes riding down my arms. We grinned at each other with stupid, childlike glee. Our naked bodies were visible in the water. But what was there to be embarrassed about? We were nothing more than two insects preserved in amber, after all. Yeah, so I'm assuming you might remember writing that, and I'm curious about your, your experience writing that. And then that um, element where this most sublime writing is also a transcendent moment for your character. That, that doesn't always have to be the case, but it is here. Well, it, it's more or less... <laughs> It's more or less the sex scene, the love and the sex scene between Willie and 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 uh, Leslie, uh, but because they uh, she's married and he's he's homosexual, so there there can't be a sex scene. But I wanted to have that physical and as you said, transcendental moment between them. So this this is more or less the sex scene between them. And this scene was written much later, and what in fact it was written after I had submitted the, the manuscript to my editor at Canongate, uh, Francis. The scene came to me as we were rewriting and working on on the manuscript. Initially, this scene was set much earlier because I thought that there should be a scene where Willie and Leslie uh, uh, begin to trust each other completely. Uh, because this is where she she almost drowns and he he saves her by pulling her up from her spell under, under the sea. 
but Francis was of the view that this this scene is, it shouldn't be so early in the book, but it should be, actually be the uh, the payoff of of the growing relationship. So he suggested that we put it uh, further back, almost at the end of the book. Uh, and I must say it 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 worked better at the end of the book than than at the beginning because if I had put it earlier on, I think uh, we would have let the the air out of the balloon much much earlier. So there's this tension between the two of them building building up, and then this this is actually the release. Um, uh, that's uh, and and a, a bookseller in Penang had told me that he wanted to read this scene. Uh, while under the influence of drugs, because he, he felt that it was it, it it was very psychedelic, and he would enjoy it more. And he's been going around telling people, "Oh, you should read this this, this scene when you're high." And you know, it gives a different dimension to it. <laughs> but you didn't write it when you were high. No, no. When well, I don't, I don't think I would have I would have been capable of writing anything if if I had been high. <laughs> What would you say to other writers about when you kind of hit that magic moment in your book and what you're describing is also a moment of, of change for your characters? There's like, to me, there's like this magical marriage there between language and, and plot line almost. Well, I think that that's what every writer has to achieve, you know, however difficult and almost impossible it is because you are the language is is the our tools as as writers and, and we've got to use those tools to the best effect and yet be subtle about it you i i i really don't like books where it's so obvious the writer is trying to tell me uh, a lesson or teach me a lesson or tell me that i have to learn this lesson i i i, I hate that and straight away i my defensive walls are up and I stop enjoying the book. I sometimes even stop reading the book altogether when I become aware that the writer has this obvious and overt agenda. So as writers, we have to be really subtle. Uh, we really have to push the language and the storyline and the writing and so many things, dialogue as well. Use all of those to convey not just the not just the message that we're trying to to impart, but actually to to weave it into the story and the language itself, uh, and and that's what makes writing so frustrating because it, it's extremely difficult, uh, and you know it's difficult. Yes, but if you pull it off, it's also extremely rewarding. So my advice to other writers is to you 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 got to do it you have to do it it's it's your duty it's your job uh and the rewards are are worth it uh, the rewards are worth all the strife and the tension and the frustration and the anger and, and the disappointment um we, we just have to do it it's it's the job i don't know if you've ever dan- like gone out dancing to a dj but that's what that section reminded me of uh, is the way that dj's can like build yeah. and build and build and yes. people are dancing and dancing and dancing and then yeah. they just explode and then come down. Yeah. Was, have you ever done that? The, the, yes, the, the melody keeps rising and rising and you're wondering when it's going to break, but it still keeps going and going and going. And yeah. Have That's, you ever yes, danced yes, long, to it? Long, long time ago when I was, in, when I was uh, at, probably at uh, A-levels, which is pre-university. <laughs> it might be time to go again. No, I've I've become so 
housebound and and so I, I love being at home now uh, i think it's it's a, one of the consequences of aging i mean i'm 51 this year so and my bedtime is well my i i'm in bed by eight o'clock i don't sleep but i read and i, I waste a lot of time um, on my ipad but by 8 p.m most nights i'm already lying in my bed <laughs> Even even my mother's appalled. Uh, she's shocked by it. She's yes. <laughs> there was this undercurrent in this story, which uh, is probably not feels like an undercurrent when you're living in Malaysia in this time period. Mm. But the um, of the racism, there was yeah. um, you know the difference between the Europeans and the Chinese and mm. um, the, the native- Malays, the Malays and the Indians. Yes, yeah. There's a line. I mean, basically what happens with this trial is that um, at the end, she is convicted of murder and set to be hanged. And she there is a way out, which is to ask the sultan to to, for a pardon. And there's a line in there that says, how can we allow an Asiatic potentate to exercise the power of life and death over a European and English woman? And I was like throwing the book. I was so angry. Well, it's meant to make you angry. So I'm glad you have that reaction. Uh, if you didn't have that reaction, I would start to doubt you. <laughs> it's a lot of the stuff uh, intentionally there, but not o- also not overt. It's part that that sentence is is real. That that, that sentence um, was on on one of the records, and uh, one of the letters which uh, people wrote to the newspapers after the trial as well, when when they found out that she was going to uh, throw herself upon the mercy of of the uh, the sultan. So it's 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 I mean you know we're writing about the society a hundred years ago. So I had to be true and authentic to the times when uh, my American publishers first read the manuscript and uh, as Bloomsbury. So it's different from Canongate. So the editor was a bit uncomfortable with uh, some of the words I used there, phrases like Chinaman or coolie, and they asked me if uh, I could change the words. And I said, um, I, I don't want to, because those were how, those were the terms which were thrown about in, in those days. And, and in fact, those are the words which Somerset Warm himself used in his stories. And I wanted that. I wanted those words in there just to show how, how <clears throat> far things have changed. Yeah, so I wanted those words in there. And again, I told them, you feel uncomfortable? That's great, because I want you to feel uncomfortable. <laughs> so they saw the point of it. And um, and yes, it's there. It's, it's, it, it should make everyone feel slightly uh, uh, squirmy you know, when, when they read that. And to understand how the Malaysian people, uh, what the sort of things that, the Malaysian people had to endure in, in those times from from the from the Brits. You know, they were very condescending, very superior. Um, so, I wanted all that in to to reflect accurately what what they experienced. And have you heard back from readers so far about that element? No, not at all. They Malaysian readers, um, they they understood why. Why do those those elements were in the book? Uh, British readers as well. In fact, they British readers were. I think I think they were. Oh, they're aware of it as well. So there's there's been no um, negative comments that I was using those terms gratuitously, which I wasn't. Um, a few American 
uh, readers have expressed their discomfort with those words. Um, usually online, on like places like Goodreads or, or NetGalley, I've been, I've been, I've been spying on those comments, um, and they felt um, uncomfortable. But we are, which is what I wanted them. I'm, I'm glad they felt uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, it's not your job to make people comfortable. It's your job to reflect the no. truth of the times. Yes, yes, uh, and I think that's that's where. Yeah, and I'm I'm not using those words for shock value. You know, it 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 they are there for a reason. It is to uh, to reflect uh, the how how things were, because things weren't nice in those days. I would say things aren't nice today either. So, uh, if, if somebody a writer were to write about our world uh, in fifty years' time, uh, you know, a lot of the words used today, he, that writer would have to incorporate as well, just to show how how things are. Um, that's that's being um, historically uh, accurate and authentic. What do you learn when you spy on people's comments on NetGalley and Goodreads? Well, the, the, the good reviews uh, I, uh, delight me and I say, wow, you have great taste in literature and reading. And just, uh, the bad reviews, I say, ah, you don't know what you're talking about. So, <laughs> so it doesn't um, dim your you. spirit. I think just for maybe for a flicker of a second, if if, if the, the review were um, slightly malicious or overly obtuse and I say, come on, you know, can't you see it? You know, you're being, you know, you're being dull, you're being obtuse here. But most of the time it's, um, I read it as a sort of, uh, to gauge how the book is doing more than anything else, how the book is being received. Uh, sometimes I do, you know, the, the more well-written and, and comprehensive reviews, even if they're, they're negative, you, you can learn from it, you can learn and you can improve your writing as well. From it, you you can see okay, what why does this reader have a problem with certain sections of the book, and they, and they they do break it down for you, and you start thinking okay, maybe he's got a point, maybe. So yes, I think it's useful um, to to read those uh, reviews, but you can't let them um, get you down or lift you too high and until you, you, you have such a big, a huge ego, because in, in the end, it's, it's really your writing, the quality of your writing, which has to, um, to stand the test of time. And, uh, and that's, that's the most important thing more than the uh, temporary praises or, or criticisms. <laughs> what do you think about the idea that like no piece of art is a perfect thing? I mean, maybe you found absolutely perfect literature without a flaw, but that no. we only go as far as we can go and then we can't, maybe we can't see it at the time or we can't fix it, that it's like there is no perfect piece of art. There is no perfect book. And maybe in time you can go back and figure out how you could fix something that you can see later wasn't perfect. But have you, what do you think about that? I don't think there can be any piece of uh, perfect art because uh, we, the creators, are not perfect. So if we're not perfect, how can we create something which is perfect? We can't. And if you think about, you talk about going back later to to fix something. Now, you, if you, in the process of fixing something, you might uh, um, please certain people, but 
you you would also uh, annoy another segment of people because they felt that piece of work was already perfect and now you you've ruined it. You know, it it's like all these um, the movies where where let's say the original Star Wars, the trilogy when George Lucas went back to to fix it to make it make more perfect. He enraged so many of his fans. You know? And I think each piece of art should not be fixed retrospectively because they are a testament to the artist's uh, um, viewpoint and maturity at that moment in time. So I see a lot of flaws in all of my books, but I, I don't want to fix them because they, they are a testament to the person I was when I was writing them. And to go back to fix them is more or less to erase who I had been at that stage. And I, I don't want to do that. I want to look at the early books and say, oh, this is bad. This is but you know, there's hope because the next book was slightly better and the next one is better. And it charts your your growth and your progression and your evolution as a writer. Uh, and I think that's very important for for all artists, writers or singers or painters. Yeah, and you I mean you got long listed for the man booker. <laughs> Well, I don't know how to respond to it. I suppose, you, know, you see, again, if it also depends on the panel of judges for this year. If the if the panel of judges were, were different, uh, different set of people, they they might have felt that this book wasn't worth long listing. So it, it's all the thing is, it's also, um, um, it's also uh, uh, subjective. You, know, you you really can't you really can't predict. So the best best way for a writer to work is to try and write the best sentence that you can you know and then just hope that other people um enjoy that as well otherwise it's you 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 can't pander to everyone you can't please everyone because you end up pleasing nobody if you try that earlier in our conversation you said you were trying to not write as descriptively and then we talked about this descriptive paragraph that was really I don't know if it was a game changer for the book, but it was very important for the book in the end. And so I wonder how you feel now for your next book is this descriptive writing was something that uh, became integral to this body of work. Um, so how do you feel about that going forward? Well, I think, I think my own taste is that I would always try to write uh, descriptively, especially I'm always trying to come up with, with, as I mentioned, fresh and original ways of looking at the the commonplace. Um, for instance, in 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 the Garden of Evening Mist, I had this sentence which which I'm very proud of, and and that I describe uh, a, a spider a spider web, you know, uh, drifting in the wind on on a branch, and I just said that the spider web um, seething the wind for insects. And I felt when I wrote that, I knew, oh, this is this is okay, this is very good, because it. It's exactly how a spider web is, and yet nobody else has seen it in in that way. Uh, so I'm trying to bring that sort of level to everything I write, which is impossible, but I still have to try and have to try. So, but the first draft I know will be overwritten. Uh, it's only in the subsequent rewriting that I'll start chipping away and say, "Oh, this is awful. This I can't have this published or seen by anyone." <laughs> So that's that's when you start paring down, and it also depends on the book uh, that I'm writing and the characters in in, in the book. Uh, for instance, in the House of Doors, Leslie is very dry and very careful with 
the words she uses. So the description has to be really toned down uh, considerably. Uh, whereas with somebody like, um, say, in in the Garden of Evening Mist, where where the characters are dealing with nature and he's a garden designer, then the the language has to reflect that. It has to reflect the metaphors he would use and how he sees the world and how he would describe the world in terms of it's more in terms of nature oriented description. So it, it depends on the characters and the books that are going to come over <laughs> and to see what sort of what sort of style uh, suits the the novel the book best. Um, so I'm open to changes, but uh, I still love descriptive writing. It's it's a challenge, uh, but it's it's playing with words, which which I really enjoy. Yeah, and I think to that same point, your characters also have to be true to their, like their who they are, their personality, their yes. moral code. So, for instance, like Leslie yeah. wasn't like she wasn't a lush, radiant person. She didn't like pontificate on things. So no. she was also a voice within the book where she had her moral compass and one of her issues was how women are treated, that she had yes. times when she couldn't handle the fact and she spoke up about it, that Sun Yat-sen had many wives and yes. that um, she, there's a line she has in there that I love. She's talking about like, why do these men really marry women mm. and and yeah. Somerset Mon is saying like what choice do we have and she said yes. we're wives not martyrs uh we, we could we could talk about her uh, the uh, her, her annoyance at how women are tr were treated in those days as specifically how women are forgotten by society uh, and by history because she's she's obsessed with that she's she's fearful of being forgotten and that's why she joined she helps on your sin as well she was hoping to play a, a part in in this great historical event and that's also one of the reasons why she decided to tell somerset more on her story because she knew that based on his reputation he would write something about her and she wanted to be remembered i think which i think is a, a very pertinent point for all of us we all want to be remembered in some way and she, she, she. I think she tells Somerset Maugham as well that why is it that for women to be remembered, we either have to be queens or whores? And what about the normal woman like me, the housewife, or the the mother? Um, yeah, that's that's that. I felt uh, showed who she really is. That she she wants to be remembered, especially because you know Ethel Proudlock is actually one of the earliest cases of the so-called cancellation. She was cancelled by her society uh, after after her trial because her the Europeans around her didn't want her as a reminder. So she was exiled and she was erased from uh, all talk and all mention of her. And it took Somerset Maugham to arrive and start stirring up all all the mud again. And that's why one of the reasons why people were so upset with him as well when he published the letter that here you are raking up everything again. Uh when we wanted all we wanted was to forget Ethel Proudlock had ever existed. So I found that interesting as well that this was a a, a very early case of, of, of the cancel culture that we have today. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash first draft writers. 
I'm curious if all the research you did on Somerset Mon changed anything about the way you wrote or looked at writing. He's inspired me to be more um, hardworking because he, he he was very hardworking despite the image of a of a constant traveler. He was always aware that he had to make money and money was his driving obsession with him. He wanted a lot of money and he wrote mainly for money. Uh, but he was very hardworking and I I, I like that. I it's it's sort of uh, and, and inspires me to be more hardworking because inherently uh, I'm quite lazy uh, in many ways. <laughs> the Somerset mom, he was a traveler and he could report and write stories about things he saw and heard in the moment, but he didn't have any of the benefit of time and you had the benefit of time. And so you kind of wrote the same story and, and, you know, the kernel of the story, but you had yeah. the benefit of time, perspective, records, yeah. changing, you know. So it's, I think there's also something really illuminating there about writing and like working with what you have in the moment versus having more space to look at it from a broader view. And it's not like one is better, but it's, it offers different things. Yeah, I think so because uh, Somerset Mom used to dash off his stories because he, he he had people waiting to buy them, magazines waiting to serialize them, and he was again writing for money. Uh, but whereas with with well with, with novel writing and with with me in particular, I I need a lot of time to 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 slowly grow the story. I want to feel it. I want to. Uh, experience every element and see what works and what doesn't and that's one of the reasons aside from the fact that i'm lazy that's why the book took so long to, to write because it, it wasn't working the first few drafts were not working everything was a mess uh, my first reader read the first draft and he he shook his head and said you can't publish this it's it's awful my agent and her slush pal reader, uh, they read the draft and uh, we actually had to have a few Zoom meetings because they were they were so concerned, they were so appalled. Uh, in fact, the, my, the, uh, my agent, when she, when she rang me on Zoom and she said, all right, uh, we're not going to talk anything, but first we'll start with, um, you tell me what you think, you're, what's wrong with your novel. And that's all. <laughs> So that didn't work at all until um, Francis from Canongate stepped in, and then we started. He started giving structure to to the whole book. So writing books uh, takes time. I, I agree with you. It, it's it's and you can't rush it because uh, if you rush it, it, I think it, you come up with a with a book that's shoddy, and would not um, endure the test of time, which which I want my books to be because. Uh, What's the point of spending seven years writing a book if it's going to be forgotten in two years' time? Uh, my goal is for for my books to be read long after I'm dead. And for that to happen, I really have to uh, spend a lot of time making it as well close to perfection as possible, which is impossible, as we've discussed. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? Okay. Um, I've got um, Penelope Lively's Moon Tiger. I don't know if you read this, but if you haven't, you must. It, it's superb, the writing. So this final scene is actually the, the, the narrator's death scene. And Penelope Lively writes, uh, describes this, the, the scene in such a way that 
you're aware that um the character has 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 uh has has died but she doesn't talk about it she just describes a room and there's a sort of uh, a depletion of life from the room from from the hospital room uh, it's, a, it's a short paragraph so I'll, I'll, I'll read it now the sun sinks and the glittering tree is extinguished the room darkens again presently it is quite dim the window is violet now showing the black tracery of branches and a line of houses packed with squares of light and within the room, a change has taken place. It is empty, void. It has the stillness of a place in which there are only inanimate objects, metal, wood, glass, plastic, no life. Something creaks, the involuntary sound of expansion or contraction. Beyond the window, a car starts up. An aeroplane passes overhead. The world moves on. And beside the bed, the radio gives the time signal. And a voice starts to read the six o'clock news. So tell me why you chose that. Well, it's the underwriting. The, she doesn't overwrite, which I'm always conscious that I've, I'm, I'm, I tend to do that. So whenever I read uh, Penelope Lively, I, I'm amazed at how much she can convey by just so subtle and so little that is said. Uh, it, it, it's a remarkable book. I've, I've, I've read it many times and I've, I've bought copies of Friends as well to, to, you know, just, just to make them read, read it. So, uh, and I think she's, she's, she deserves to be more well-known because she's quite underrated. Uh, and she's quite old now. I think she's in the late 80s, so she stopped writing. But she's still alive, uh, still still living in London, and uh, this 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 is a, an incredible novel. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard mm. or changed a lot from the first draft. All right, I'll read the opening um, uh, three paragraphs of the House of Doors, the prologue, because the the opening is always the last thing I write again and again. After I finish the manuscript, I go back again and I try to work it. So this is the opening of the prologue. A story, like a bird of the mountain, can carry a name beyond the clouds, beyond even time itself. Willie Morm said that to me many years ago. He has not appeared in my thoughts in a long time, but as I gaze at the mountains from my stoop on this autumn morning, I can hear his thin, dry voice, his diction precise, correct, like everything else about him. In my memory, I see him again on his last night in our old house on the other side of the world. The two of us on the veranda behind the house, talking quietly, the full moon a coracle of light that drift about the sea. Everyone else in the house had already retired to bed. When morning came, he sailed from Penang, and I never saw him again. Ten thousand days and nights have drifted down the endless river since that evening. I live on the shores of a different sea now, a sea of silent stone and sand. So tell me more about choosing that. Well, as I mentioned, it's uh, it's actually the last section I worked on before I sent out the manuscript. It, for me, the first paragraph, the first sentence has to convey an 
encapsulate what my entire novel is about. And it's what I look for in many first sentences of novels. So that's the hardest thing to do. You know, we've finished writing the book now. You've, you've, you know what the book is about. So you have to go back and to that first line and try to, to capture everything, the feel, the atmosphere, the language, the characters, the themes of the book into that first one or two sentences and as well as the uh, following paragraph. So that I found was the hardest thing to write but also the most enjoyable because it's you you know what your book is about and now you're trying to to capture it and to describe it to a potential uh, reader of the book when when the reader picks up the book and opens opens it to the first page you are actually uh trying to sell your book in those short moments so you it has to work it has to be effective it has to be powerful and it has to evoke feelings in the reader. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, that's, that's why I, I chose that to read. Where do you write? At my desk, wherever I am, um, it has to be a working space. I, I can't write when I'm lying in bed or when I'm sitting in a, in a nice place. You know? I can't write when I'm traveling because I feel that I should be out there exploring the place instead of uh, um, sitting at my desk working. So always has to be at my desk and it always has to be a quiet environment where I don't hear any noise from the neighbors or anything that's distracting. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I go for walks, long walks in the evening, uh, just to clear my head and to hopefully find inspiration for pretty writing and descriptions. <laughs> I go swimming in the morning uh, and then I spend, usually try to go to the gym for an hour just to you know, do some physical work. And I cook. Uh, I cook and uh, look after the house because there's always something wrong with the house and you have to deal with the problems. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, a few of my closest friends. Uh, I've got a writing mentor uh, who... who, who who've uh, he's, he's read all of my first drafts and he always tells me how bad they are and uh, how awful and I can't publish them. But the good thing is that he, he not only criticizes what's wrong, but he can tell you why it's wrong, why he feels that this thing doesn't work or this. So it's very useful. And uh, uh, it's always useful to be, to have somebody like that because I, I don't like it. I hate being criticized even, <laughs> even at home, but I think it's much better to be uh, criticized in the privacy of your own home than to publish something which is substandard and then have the whole world you know, crap on you. <laughs> so I, have to, I endure it. I live with it. How have you dealt with rejection? Uh, with defiance. Uh, with with uh, a sense of I think to be a writer, you also have to have quite a huge ego as well. You have to have this self-belief that you are a good writer and you can create a work which is uh, 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 well-received. So I think that I do have that sense of ego with me, which I don't show to people. I don't use it as a tool to get... Uh, attention but that belief is there in there and I think you have to have it otherwise um, 
you you can't function. You can't you can't keep writing when somebody tells you or somebody rejects your work. You you just can't. And what is your favorite word? Oh, uh, royalties. <laughs> Lots of it. <laughs> well, Tuan, thank you so much for your time and oh. talking to me. I'm really appreciative. It's uh, it's really been fun talking to you, Mitzi. Thank, thanks for having me on your show. Thank you. If you like today's show with Tan Tuan Eng, author of The House of Doors, check out my interview with Viet Tan Nguyen on his book, The Refugees. We talked about how Nguyen learned to write a short story, what it was like growing up in his household, and identity. This is the first interview with Viet Tan Nguyen that I did. I also recommend the second one on his novel, The Committed. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 420 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft ADOW. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Buzzy Jackson, David James Duncan, and Alice McDermott. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.